Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Lift, Episode 7. I'm Linda LeBlanc. And I'm Tyra Sellers. And today we're going to be focusing on Chapter 7 of our book, which is about structured problem solving. Problem solving is something that has interested me for the last decade or so, not only studying problem solving from a developmental perspective with young children, but also examining how adults solve problems. And we tend to be very capable problem solvers as long as we decide we're going to solve a problem. That really speaks to the fact that it's um, kind of runs through our uh, the human experience to sometimes not notice problems when we should. In fact, our quote for this chapter, all problems become smaller when you confront them instead of dodging them, really speaks to that, that notion that there is a powerful role of negative reinforcement with respect to how we respond or don't respond to problems, and also uh, potentially in some of our problem-solving strategies. Tyra, how about you? You love a problem or not so much? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't always love a problem, but I definitely love an opportunity to think about problem-solving, and I love an opportunity to solve a problem. So there's that. Um, My interest in problem-solving, similar to yours, Uh, started early on in my career, both with young children and with the individuals with whom I worked and myself. And I sort of got pulled into it, um, not necessarily specifically related to problem solving overall, but thinking about a piece of problem solving, which is creativity or behavioral variability, which is something I'm very passionate about and kind of comes at a specific point in problem solving. Um, But I agree that we appear to be uniquely positioned to engage in a lot of escape and avoidant behavior around problem solving. And I think also, if we are not thoughtful about problem solving processes, that we could end up with some false positives where the problem is solved, but not necessarily because of what we did, but because we're great at identifying patterns, we might assume that it was what we did. And then we will do that thing again under similar conditions in the future. And that's really dangerous. So I think you know, talking with you over the last many years about problem solving um, has solidified how important it is because there are some pretty significant risks around missing opportunities or those false positive situations. So uh, I'm excited to talk about problem solving today. Woo-woo, problem solving. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things that I think can happen is that um, you negative reinforcement can operate in that you don't even acknowledge that there is a problem. Mm -hmm. If you were to name it, so to speak, and give it power, then you'd have to do something about it. And we just have this really powerful ability to not see the dysfunction that could be right in front of us. And I think that that can occur not only in some of the work we do with clients, but it can absolutely occur in the 
supervision management uh, kind of process where you just kind of stay on autopilot. And if someone were to say, if they were to peek in and observe and say, wait a minute, did you notice this is happening? Mm -hmm. We'd say, well, yeah, maybe so. (laughs) (laughs) But we won't come to that point on our own. Yeah, I agree. And I think that we also are very busy uh, and multitasking and taking on more and more responsibilities, which can result in us not having systems to continually look for uh, emerging problems, purposely for looking for problems, not just to check in, is everything going okay, but really a system to check in different areas like programming with your clients or your trainees and your supervisees or your caregivers for the specific purpose of temperature check any emerging problems happening. And I think we just don't do that. And it's something that folks probably need to build into their repertoires so that they even have an opportunity to ignore the problem. Because if you're not even looking for it, that's a problematic in the first place. And then I think there's this other piece that comes into it where we might we might catch a glimpse that there's an issue, but it's sort of like not that big of a deal, right? Like maybe it's smaller in scope or it's not as, doesn't have as big of risk of harm um, as we would think if we really dug into it. So like sort of like you catch a whiff of it, but you don't really attend to it, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And I think, you know, especially when you are supervising people that are very new to practice, I think I see that a lot where they can tell something is wrong, but not really see the entire scope of it. So for example, they may come to you Uh, for guidance. And it's about a program that's not going well. They're not Mm -hmm. seeing really good acquisition. And as you begin to dig in, you start to realize that that some kind of uh, faulty stimulus control pattern has emerged and that there are probably multiple programs that are being affected (laughs) by this. and, And they just haven't yet kind of made contact with the scope of it through the data. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think another example is sort of when you, if you're someone that supervises people that supervise people, you might have someone come to you and sort of just say like, ah, you know, like things are funky with this person, or I don't know, like, I'm just not, I don't really, I'm not enjoying working with them, uh, but they're not quite able to put their finger on the issue or sort of, you know, I'm just not enjoying supervision and not understanding the scope. And I think um, what I would love for people to hear is if, and this is not very behavior analytic, but if you well, I'll try to make it behavior analytic. <laughs> okay, because yeah. we are offering a CE for this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And you can help shape this because you're really good at doing those like in the moment translations. But here's what I tell my folks and what I try to remind myself. If I am engaging in covert or overt verbal behavior or having physiological responses that, you know, are sort of described as discomfort or aversive, whatever. I'm having not awesome thoughts about someone or my stomach feels kind of queasy. Those are pieces of data. And I think what what is 
uncomfortable for us is that we don't want to necessarily say those are indicating something. And you don't know what they're indicating yet. But my guess is if you dig in and do the work, you will be able to discriminate what is causing or at least what is related to the kind of covert or overt verbal behavior or your funny feeling. So if you have those indicators, stop and try to engage in systematic problem identification where you can discriminate exactly what the issue is. So don't discount that, but don't buy into, oh, Linda's just difficult, right? No, what is it that I'm attending to when I say those things? So you have to kind of dig a little deeper. Uh, but I think that happens a lot when folks get that, sort like you smell the smoke maybe on the horizon, yeah. but you can't quite figure out how to uh, change your lens of focus to find the actual fire. And that's often where a mentor or a colleague comes in where you can talk about those things. I think that's right. And I think a lot of times as you're talking to that person, they may help you be able to recognize that you have a role in the evolving problem. <laughs> Common denominator. <laughs> and that there is um, there there's something that you're responding to in that other person's behavior, but you're also responding to your own behavior. Mm -hmm. So that is because you haven't acknowledged, I feel uncomfortable when I am supervising this person, you're kind of behaving in a very contingency shaped way with no power of your rules to say, but my job is to be their supervisor. And so <laughs> I need to put that aside or I need to behave differently and I'm not doing it. Yes. So very often when we don't really name something as a problem and look at what are all the contributors to this problem, we miss that our behavior is part of it. We are the environment to someone else's person, mm -hmm. just like they're the environment to us. And I think when we miss that contributory variable, we also miss our opportunity to solve the problem. Yeah. Acknowledging that you are affecting a situation is the great first step to recognizing that if you behave differently, you might affect that situation differently. Yep. And that's kind of what gets you into more meaningful problem solving. Yeah. And I think that kind of trickles into this other idea that many of us, and I'm guilty of this for sure, might, you know, catch that whiff of smoke, might even be able to sort of lightly identify it, maybe not quite the scope of the problem, but then we sort of think, but you know what, it'll probably get better, or I need to give this person some more time or whatever, um, and engage in some avoidant behavior. Uh, and I would, you know, argue that in most situations, likely ignoring or just thinking that something is going to improve over time probably is ineffective. And if it does improve over time, something probably changed and you just can't detect it. Uh, so don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Problems aren't smart. They don't solve themselves. No, you know, <laughs> just like the trash, stinky trash isn't going to take itself out. Just waiting and hoping that's going to get better with time is um, just almost never uh, really effective. And you know, that whole like, it, it train and hope 
for example, generalization is something that is, you know, abhorrent to us. We would never do that. So it makes sense that we should not do that when it comes to problems, particularly those within the supervisory relationship. Yeah. Well, I do think the supervisor, you know, certainly has their own behavior in solving problems that they should examine and, and in many ways may already be very good at in certain realms, but the value of actively teaching your supervisees and trainees to use a structured problem-solving approach, I think that is a great gift that you can give because there will be a time when you're not around and you want to build their independence and their their success and capability to solve those problems when you're not there to solve it with them anymore. Yeah. But that's a hard um, that's a hard focus to keep because when supervisees and trainees come to you with a problem, there's a really good chance you've seen that, done that, solved that before, and you have a solution that's at strength. And there can be a a stunting of the growth of the supervisee if you just give out those solutions like candy Instead of pausing and kind of going through that problem solving process with them to teach them how to do it. Right. You're going to give them the fish or are you going to teach them how to fish? (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, that said, there are instances probably where the risk of harm is too great that you do just have to take action. And that's okay. If there's an instance where, you know, as a supervisor, I just have to solve this problem right now because there's a risk of harm. But then I can take that as an opportunity to debrief, talk about why I made that choice, and then walk them through my problem solving and problem um, kind of evaluation processes. But I think most issues, whether or not your supervisee or trainee is identifying it or you're identifying it, can probably be solved in a more uh, instructive manner. Um, And that said, you should teach problem solving outside of the presence of an actual problem, right? Like, let's teach a structured problem solving method um, in a more kind of didactic manner and then apply it when those real problems come up um, with them. So, yeah. Well, you know, I have throughout my whole life in all kinds of situations, um, I tend to be a little speedy in my behavior. (laughs) Lots of thoughts, lots of actions, lots of talking, lots of everything. And I really have to kind of view it as my job and my purpose. And I have to arrange my environment to keep myself mindful of the fact that it's not my job to solve their problems. It's my job to teach them to problem solve, but that really takes self-control. Yeah. Slow the hell down, Linda. (laughs) (laughs) Slow down, Skippy. Uh, You know, there is this quick reinforcer and low effort to just give the solution because you've already rapidly done all the steps of problem solving and gotten there. 
plus they're going to be grateful and happy and right. <laughs> you're you're a giver of the good things yes and um that's a that's an ultimate like quick immediate low effort reinforcer well the other is this more effortful let's go through the steps let me not say what i already know and ask <laughs> questions yes to help you think about what you're going to figure out and it's delayed. Um, it's a bigger reinforcer when you do that, but the reinforcer is their later independent generative problem solving. And you might not see that for months. Yeah. 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 Well, do you have strategies to like sort of increase the latency between Linda's hearing about a problem and Linda's solving the problem. So she makes space for someone else to solve the problem with her support. Like, what do you do? What are your strategies? Well, so one of them, and I, I don't want to tell you all of them, because if I ever have a supervisor, they're going to know. And then like, uh-huh, that's Linda's little strategy now. But I talk with my hands. And so when I'm listening, I cross my fingers really tightly together and keep them in my lap. And, and then, everybody listening, you all can't see this, but like, she's literally modeling this for me now <laughs> by, by, by interlacing her fingers and holding them up to the camera. So I can confirm she does that. <laughs> That's right. And it's, it's um, kind of helps me pause. And I also insert a few responses that pauses and so probably one of the ones I've been called out on before wait, wait, is, can I tell you can I say it is it yes. this one well yes <laughs> that's yes. right nailed it <laughs> and that well will typically be followed by a question or an observing statement rather than the more direct response. And sure. so, you know, we can, I recognize that my impulsivity and giving the answers actually was a problem. Mm -hmm. And I had to generate some alternative things that I could do. Because once you do something that starts to get the person who's brought the problem on that problem solving train, that's very reinforcing. Mm -hmm. When they start talking about, oh, I see what you mean. Maybe this other thing mm -hmm. is also related. That's really reinforcing for me. I just have to get myself to that point. Yeah. Um, and early on, I even would write myself little sticky notes <laughs> that would be visible to me, but not them, like right at the bottom of my desk that says, teach, teach, teach. <laughs> I love those little covert visual prompts that we have. How about you? Um, I think that probably your sort of, um, your delay or mediating response of, well, has made it into my repertoire. Um, I think also I often am not good at recognizing it before the words start leaving my mouth. So I do a lot of converting. Like I might start saying, oh, you know, I can see that 
And then I'll pause and then I'll say, well, you know what, actually, I want to know what you think. What do you see? Or what are your thoughts? So I don't usually catch myself ahead of time like you do. Um, but I'm at least usually able to kind of convert it. Um, when I know that there's a problem solving opportunity coming up, I have steps that I go through before I start talking about it with the person, or if I know I've identified a problem, but I want to kind of pull it out of them. And so before I meet with them or as they're presenting the problem, I sort of go through this checklist in my head. Is someone, did someone get hurt or is someone going to get hurt like in the next, you know, whatever, 24 hours? Because if that's the case, I might need to just jump ahead and go ahead and solve it. If not, then, you know, my internal dialogue is sort of like, cool, calm down. This is a teaching moment. This is not your moment to shine. This is your moment to help someone else shine. And I just kind of go through that narrative in my head to remind myself that, you know, my goal and values related to supervision are uh, to strengthen someone else, not to make me look good, not, you know, to, brighten my light. I don't need to do that. We need to brighten, you know, bright, make the whole world's light brighter. Uh, And so that usually helps me. It's kind of like a pre-check. Great. Pre-flight check. (laughs) That's right. Got your checklist. Ready to go. Ready to take off. And one of the things that can happen as someone starts to get better at the problem solving process, and we'll talk in a minute about the the process that we lay out Mm -hmm. um, is they recognize client, direct client behavior and issues as, as a problem to be focused on. So maybe something's not going well with this program or problem behavior is developing, but they're They don't recognize other kinds of things, like let's say an issue in the relationship with the family Mm -hmm. or even a staff performance issue the same way. They basically that new situation doesn't evoke their problem solving repertoire. Instead, it kind of evokes that lifelong kind of history we have with (laughs) blaming they're broken you know this is (laughs) this is an issue with them and yeah don't look don't look at that (laughs) that's right um and so a, a part of I think being a good supervisor is broadening that stimulus class of situations that will evoke the problem solving repertoire that you are trying to establish. And, you know, as you said, you don't have to have a problem causing you pain right now to go through the problem solving process. Sure. You could examine a situation that's already happened. You could present a new situation mm-hmm. that that person's never encountered. So, It's really about, I think, enough at-bats with this problem-solving process to really expand the definition. I agree. And I think... I think that there's one other component in there when you were talking about, you know, that there need to be sort of stimuli to evoke a debt problem identification and problem-solving. I think that one of the reasons that we are better at it with our clients is that we're consuming a truckload of data related to our clients 
all, well, you should be all the time, right? But often we're not structured in taking data with our trainees or taking data with our uh, staff satisfaction or our you know, stakeholder satisfaction or um, our ability to double check that we're not engaging in microaggressions or you name it. We're not collecting purposeful data on those things. So we don't come in contact with stimuli that could be like, hey, guess what? There's a problem over here. So my other suggestion would be spend time figuring out some systems for checking on those things. We know how to take data on if our trainees are consistently late or if they're making less eye contact in meetings or they're smiling, you know, like put some momentary time sampling up in that piece and catch some data on what's going on so you can catch those instances. Um, and I don't know, sort of exercise your problem solving muscles with those more complicated or complex or maybe just less familiar um, problems. Yeah. And so we lay out a five-step process and we have primarily been talking about step one, which is detect the problem, mm -hmm. kind of overcome that avoidance, get a little data, do uh, recognize the smoke. So we talk in the book about teaching people to bring smoke or recognize smoke rather than waiting for a fire. Mm -hmm. And, and also notice the subtle things, notice what's missing that someone used to do because not everything is super in your face. Right. right. And right. particularly with interpersonal interactions, often when a problem develops, there is a little bit more withdrawal, less contact, less comfortable, fluid interactions. And that can be more subtle to notice, but once you've detected the problem, which for many people is scary, if <laughs> they don't know that having a problem does not mean you need to immediately have a solution. It just means you need to start problem solving. You already know what to do. Don't be scared to say you have a problem. Just start problem solving. Mm -hmm. And that leads into those next steps of defining the problem behaviorally and taking kind of a functional assessment approach, Yep. generating solutions, and then doing a careful pro-con analysis of those solutions to pick one, and then quit your dawdling, implement, mm -hmm. and evaluate. And if even if it wasn't the right solution, you're going to be able to course correct. So we've talked a lot about step one, let, and we should know a lot about step two, defining the problem and finding the true scope and taking that functional assessment approach. You've done some research in OBM on applying a functional assessment approach to staff performance problems. Talk to us a little bit about how you can, like it's not all an experimental functional analysis of <laughs> client destructive behavior. There's so many other ways to do that big, the bigger meaning of the word functional analysis. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think that's a really good point. And, and I love that you're, that you're making that, that, you know, um, identifying functional relations is just about, can you consistently say under these conditions, this thing happens, changes, increases, decreases, 
Um, and we do that with our acquisition programming. We should be doing it with acquisition programming for staff, which is called training, right? Um, and you should know over time, like when I train in this way, using these examples, folks master it pretty quickly, don't engage in a lot of errors, maintain it over time. So I think just sometimes forget to apply that to you know, adult learners um, that we're working with, parents, other teachers, our trainees, our staff. And so we have a number of really fantastic free tools that people way smarter than me have, have created in our profession. Um, and they all kind of are variations on the performance diagnostic checklist. And the one that is probably most used in the applied you know, setting for service um, provision is the performance diagnostic checklist for human services. And it's fantastic because again, it increases that latency to solving the problem, forces you to focus on environmental variables. It's better matched for discrete type problems, like someone's not showing up on time or not accurately filling out their, um, you know, their supervision paperwork or what have you. But I do think that you can use it to help you connect with how to take a functional approach to things like interpersonal communication problems and things like that. But I'll tell you, just like, in my opinion, just like with trying to create, trying to assess and create a plan for problem behavior with a client. And when I say problem behavior, I mean behavior somehow that is dangerous or impeding their ability to be independent and is identified by all parties as important to try to work on. Um, same, I think the most critical piece and that people fail at a lot is the operational definition. Um, I think it's hard to teach. I think it's hard to get it right. I think it's hard for us to give up all of the subjective terminology that is at strength for us. I think same thing when it comes to issues with um, ourselves or with our staff, our trainees, that we really don't do a great job of defining. So I think this is a spot where you need to sit for a while. I think it's best when you're trying to figure out kind of what the problem is um, to talk with a colleague, a mentor, a supervisor, a peer, because likely, especially if you're involved in the problem at all, you, there's going to be quite a bit of subjectivity in there. So really trying to describe this in objective terms, in uh, measurable, observable terms, the same way we would any other thing that we're trying to get our hands around. And that's true even of skill acquisition, you know, definitions, right? Mm -hmm. Something I want you to do more of, I should have an operational definition of it. So think that defining the problem, as you said, is critical. Like you've identified it. Now really stay here. Don't put your running shoes on and try to run this. This not a sprint, you know, figure it out. Um, so I, I think we've got tools that can help us and our technology obviously um, can do wonders here. I agree. And what I find is if someone comes to a supervision or consultation session and they are basically telling stories and can't yet say exactly what they're working on, they haven't yet really formulated that good operational definition, yes. which means they certainly aren't going to have identified the function 
which should then lead to the solutions that you generate, which is step three. So it's so critical when you're doing this process to don't jump ahead. Make sure after you've detected the problem that you really do know what the true scope, be able to describe it and know what some of the functional determinants are. Mm -hmm. Because when you pull solutions out of thin air that aren't related to those functional determinants, just like anything else, they are more likely to have to be powerful and aversive rather than directly related in a meaningful way to what was kind of causing the little problem tornado in the first place. (laughs) So our, our power to operate more directly using reinforcement, using a variety of other strategies that's related to how well we identify the function with all kinds of problems. And so when you get to step three, that's probably Tyra's favorite step (laughs) where it's time to generate solutions. And what I find is a lot of people want to jump to this Oh, problem. Okay, solutions. And they want to skip step two. I certainly have, <laughs> don't do it, but I've been guilty of it. Again, remember, I'm kind of more on the impulsive train where I just am like, oh, I got a good idea. That worked before. But really holding yourself accountable to generating solutions and generating variable solutions can prevent you from doing what Tyra mentioned earlier. And that is being a one trick pony where Mm -hmm. I got my one strategy that I use, no matter what that problem looks like, Hey, I bet you're a nail. Cause I got a hammer. Um, that notion of like you hold yourself accountable to generating, there's a universe of possibilities Some of them are going to be terrible, (laughs) but more than one of them will be reasonable and actually hold yourself accountable to generating those. So Tyra, what do we do to help us if we get stuck on this of like, I just want to go with my old buddy, functional communication training or what have you. It's not that that's a bad idea, but how do you get some other things in the mix? Uh, great question. Well, I think one of the first things is, um, you know, keep in mind the potential function that you've identified, because that's going to help you, um, in generating solutions that are, that are better matched. Right. So again, just saying, oh, that person isn't performing well, we're going to throw more training at them. That might not be the right thing to do. So be thinking about, um, different variables that you've identified. So some of the things that I do, here's just kind of, this is just Tyra's head about creativity. Um, I try to engage in problem solving activities or brainstorming, um, you know, generating the solutions under stimulus conditions different than the ones I'm in right now. So for example, if, if you presented me with a problem right now, Linda, and said, we got to brainstorm some solutions, I might push my chair back and stand up. Better yet, I would leave this physical environment and I would go to a different environment. And the reason is whether or not we're aware, the stimuli that we contact regularly 
uh, are more likely to generate responses that we have engaged in in the presence of those um, stimuli. So it's very easy to just say like, okay, we're gonna problem solve, trainee, let's leave the office and go for a walk around the building or something like that as we're talking. Let's go in the meeting room. Let's go down to a cafe, uh, provided you can you know, maintain confidentiality. But so change the stimuli. I frequently will write down the first solution that comes to mind and then put it away uh, or put it on the whiteboard and then put a line through it. Something that will kind of evoke not that. Now, I might go back to it after I generate more. It's not gone, but, you know, it. Um, it sh I don't want it to be most present because I'm more likely to kind of keep coming back to it. Um, I also will often set goals for myself or other people. Like we have to come up with at least 10 different possibilities. Now I can't quote the research on this, but I've been in a few workshops where other people that do work on this, um, will say, you know, you're not actually getting the generative new, truly novel responses until you're like in the forties, which many of our problems don't need that much creativity. Um, that's like in the business world, but if you don't set a goal, you're likely to stop and land on one before you've considered all possibilities. So sometimes we'll set a goal, um, and then often if I've identified a couple of different environmental variables that I think are impacting, I might try to generate solutions under those different categories, right? So I'm thinking like some of it may be related to they don't have um, enough reminders to get this task done in a certain way. Okay, cool. What are all the solutions there? Maybe some of it is related to this is not very fun to do. What are some of the solutions there? And then I can sort of combo plate it. Uh, but those are my strategies. How about you, Linda? I love all of those strategies. And I also, um, that notion of write everything down, because <laughs> in my kind of spitballing of ideas, some silly stuff is going to come out too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I don't start evaluating while you're still generating. No, yes, that absolutely. evaluative piece really suppresses the generativity. So just yep. write it all down. If a unicorn shows up, a unicorn gets on the whiteboard. I love uh, unicorns. <laughs> that's right. If that's so, write it all down. I love that idea of knowing. I want to try to come up with at least this many ideas. Mm -hmm. And in the problem solving activity that we provide in the chapter, we have um, like four or five lines mm -hmm. and they're there for a reason because it's, we want to prompt you to come up with at least that many. Fill and then when you go to the next step, for the pro-con analysis, there are five spots for you to put a potential solution and then evaluate those pros and cons. Right. So there are these antecedent things that you can do um, to get yourself to come up with some new ideas. I really like doing this step of the brainstorming of potential solutions with another person, because mm -hmm. very often their idea then sparks a couple 
in response. And I never would have had any of those ideas if I didn't have that other person in my environment. Yeah. And you know, that brings um, up another point that, um, that is a recommendation in this kind of arena um, is to tact some rules, especially if you're doing it with someone else at the outset that sort of get at what you were saying, no ideas off the table. So a lot of people will start generating ideas from what resources do I have available? Don't do that. That comes later in your pro con analysis. Start with that sort of question, like if resources were not an issue, what are all of the possible solutions? And some of them might not be doable, but the ones that aren't doable could generate, uh, you know, an, um, sort of an algorithm or a variation of the, I mean, um, an analog or a variation of them that would be doable or that you could test out. So even if some of the solutions seem far-fetched, or as you mentioned, a unicorn, that's okay. Put them on there and give everybody permission. And nobody should say, we already tried that. Or we don't have the money for that, Linda. That doesn't matter. Like this isn't, as you said, the evaluative um, process. This is just the generative process. Mm-hmm. Well, so once you've done that generative process, you're going to, I mean, you're obviously not going to put unicorn or wave my wet magic wand. I'm putting on- unicorn <laughs> as a solution from now on every time. Every time. That's right. You're going to pick you know, maybe some combo plates, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. Uh, you're going to pick the ones that seem to have uh, the most utility, just even at first blush, eliminate the ones that are probably not really going to be viable yet, but pick three, four, five of those, and then do that careful pro con analysis. What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? And we encourage people to think, about not only advantages and disadvantages, but the short-term ones Mm -hmm. as well as the long-term ones Yep, and fill all the boxes. Because if you haven't thought of a disadvantage of a solution yet, you probably haven't thought things through carefully enough. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I, I sort of think about like, is it doable resources, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, is it going to be socially acceptable? Is it going to feel good? Cause one may be doable, um, with less resources, but not make people feel so great. And another might be a little more effortful, but make people feel better about it. I'm going to pick that one. Um, it, am I going to get a short-term benefit? Am I going to get a long-term benefit and is it sustainable, right? Like in the long term. So absolutely. That's right. And you know, I think the reason to think about the long and short-term pros and cons is because sometimes the short-term is real hard, but the long-term is so much better. For example, let's say things aren't going well with that supervisee, and you maybe even recognize that you've contributed to that. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the solutions you can evaluate is an apology, a crucial conversation. Mm-hmm. And that is hard. I mean, like the, the short term cons are, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, I don't yes. want, uh, five times, please. <laughs> but the, but the long-term benefits are so worth it. And there are things that you can do to try to cushion mm-hmm. and eliminate the short-term discomfort cons 
effort, but you can really make those longer term ones more present for yourself of um, it's the right thing to do. It's consistent with my values. I'm going to be showing this person that that's that a supervisor does this. And that's an important part of your role and that it is it is okay to be wrong and it's even more okay to apologize. So when you start writing all that stuff down, you start seeing like, oh my gosh, there are a jillion pros yes. in the long term. I just got to get through this really hard immediate con. Yep. I think that's a fantastic point. And I, I would, I would just kind of summarize that if you have a solution that that ticks most of the boxes, but you're still hesitant because it's going to be hard or it's going to make you feel bad or make someone else feel bad. A great way to kind of move past that is to reconnect with your values. So um, for example, in my work, what we often do when we have a solution or two things we're choosing between is we, um, we kind of pair them with each of our identified values. And if one of them you know, is aligned with more or all of our values, that's what we're going to go with. Or if we're hesitant about something and we can connect with our values, then often that is a way to slightly alleviate some of that discomfort. Like I know it's yucky, but this means I'm living my values of X, Y, Z. So I really love that you brought that up. So if you're a little bit more on the impulsive side and you're jumping right to the, Ooh, found a problem. I'm gonna go with my, (laughs) you know, my go-to solution. You're a little bit more on the impulsive side, but there's also the dawdler side. Mm -hmm. And there are people who will go through each of those first four steps. And then step five is you got to pick one and you Mm got to do it and you have to evaluate it. And I think that we can have these histories where being wrong is quite aversive to us Mm -hmm. and it can lead us to avoid actually making the choice and going with it. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get the like, well, I just need to think about it. Let me sleep on it. Well, let me just get a little more data. Let me just think about it. And when that occurs, you've got to really hold yourself accountable to if I need more data, what data is it? Mm -hmm. Is it data about the function of the problem? Is it data about a potential pro or con of one of the solutions? And if you can't describe what it is, you're probably just dawdling. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. And ultimately, you know, you have to pick uh, you have to pick a, dis- a solution. You have to design how you're going to implement it and have a plan. And you need to pull the trigger and do it and trust that if it wasn't the best thing in hindsight, after you get some of those data, you will have had a structured approach that you can go back to and you can tweak. Same thing with, you know, implementing a skill acquisition or a behavior reductive program with our clients. We don't just write it and let it go. We're constantly checking in because we engage in philosophic doubt. There's always a possibility we missed something or there's a better way to do something. Um, And so I think folks need to just sometimes jump and probably you're not going to have the right solution every time or early on, and you're going to have to go back and tweak. And that's okay because no one is better positioned than a behavior analyst to do that. 
Yeah. You know, there's some exciting stuff happening in the literature right now. Um, and at least for Java, I read every one of those papers, <laughs> so I know about it. But um, that notion of, you know, we choose pro uh, prompting strategies, error correction strategies, um, treatments for problem behavior. And there are more and more studies coming out, particularly on the prompting and error correction, where you have an assessment that kind of gives you data about several possible yes. strategies and really helps you work through um, some of the pros and cons with data to support that rather than just, I'm going to do everything least to most, or no. I'm going to do everything. No, no. Put your cut cookie cutters away. We don't do cookie cutter. <laughs> so that notion of, you know, here are your options. Here's the data that you have, but then your whichever one you pick, the others don't disappear sure. and you're going to get that data and you have to remember it's just data. The data are what they are. And if they're saying this isn't working, great. It's a good thing you got that data. Now you can choose something else. And if they're saying this does work, great. It's a good thing you've got that data. So, you know, there are times when you're going to have to lather, rinse, repeat. Sure. I picked this solution. I tried it. The data say it's not going that well. Let's go back to the beginning. Yep. And maybe even problem solve on your implementation. Well, are my data not good? Right. Are, is my procedural integrity not good? Is there another function that I might have missed? If so, what are my solutions? Maybe I had the right function and I just need to go back to my solutions and generate a few more or pick my second option or combo my second option with my first option. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there, there are some data even relative to supervisory type practices and training practices that are telling us something similar, like just your go-to isn't the right way. Um, there's an article by um, Bacotti and colleagues, I think, I hope I'm saying that right. And it's recent this year, 2021, that really starts showing um, that for many uh, adult learners at some point in the skill acquisition, when you're training them, Yes, immediate feedback following the response is great, but at some point, individuals not only showed a preference, but also did better when the feedback shifted to beforehand, which makes sense, right? Like, okay, Linda, tell me what I'm doing right and wrong as I'm doing it. But now that I'm getting better, I've got some acquisition, I'm more fluent, you coming and talking in my ear might be a disruptor. It might produce disfluencies. It's mucking up my flow. Like get out my mojo. Tell me about it before. Um, remember, blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, so I, I love that idea that, um, you know, we need to throw away that kind of cookie cutter one size fits all, or I'm doing it this way because I've always done it this way and continue to be responsive to um, the improvements in our profession that our science is giving us. And continue to take data on our own implementation. Yes. Be a scientist in the moment, right? Like that's what we do. That's it's right. all practitioner kind of science models. I love it. And, you know, uh, wouldn't Murray Sidman be proud that notion <laughs> brings some science to everything you do in your practice um, every day. And 
So I don't know, to wrap it up on problem solving, I would say this, we've got to recognize we have long histories where problems are terrible things and we hope we don't have them. And we've got to kind of change that mindset to, oh, you've got one, but the best one you have is the one you know about. Like, don't hope there aren't any problems. There are going to be problems. Yes. Recognize it and realize that you and develop that repertoire of what to do when you have a problem and teach it expressly and teach it to others and give them that gift. And, you know, really quickly, Linda, I know we're wrapping up, but also just to call out a resource in the book, in this chapter, in chapter seven, there's that appendix that helps you kind of identify for yourself or work with a trainee um, to identify maybe some deficits or excesses in your own or their problem solving repertoires as you're going through or teaching a structured approach. And I really love that because likely, you know, if you're someone who's more than three or four years old, you've got some funky stuff that has just been shaped over time in your problem solving. So spend some time, you know, we've got that theme of self-reflection, spend some time thinking about where you maybe need to improve or teach your trainees and supervisees how to take a structured approach to do that self-reflection around their problem-solving repertoire so they can take a more kind of active and meaningful approach to shaping things up. Yep. So for uh, this chapter on problem-solving, which is the first of um, a set where we provide these appendices about assess your own potential problems with this repertoire and then uh, work on those, um, we'll be talking about Um, the same approach of self-reflection, self-assessment in our next couple of episodes. And we really are going to bring this problem-solving mindset back when we get to solving problems in the supervisory uh, repertoires or relationship in a later chapter. So, all right. If you have been listening, please don't go anywhere because it's getting real and we have more (laughs) guests joining us in our next episode. So join us again um, for another episode of The Lift. Yeah, go find yourself a problem and get it solved. Bye, everyone.